We have um, a sheet that is being handed out. Uh, if you could grab one of those, and we're going to uh, we're trying all kinds of technical things today, and we're going to actually try to uh, have an outline on uh, PowerPoint this morning as we go, so you can um, follow along with us. All right, while we're waiting for that, you can turn with me uh, to the book of Titus as we continue our study in the New Testament. We are going to uh, look at the book of Titus this morning, the, uh, the, the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Would it be better if this was turned off? That one? Is that, is that easier to see? Okay. <clears throat> All right, very good. Titus. <clears throat> Let's take a little look at the uh, history of, uh, or the background of Titus, first of all. Titus is an interesting character. We don't hear a lot about him in the Scripture, but what we do hear about him is great. Early in Paul's ministry, he led Titus to the Lord. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, we read, Titus, a true son in our common faith. It is likely that Paul led him to the Lord. Titus was a very capable young man and uh, one whom Paul trusted in the ministry. Paul leaned on Titus on several occasions throughout his ministry and gave him some extremely difficult uh, tasks to perform. Um, in, in, each, in each case, he proved his faithfulness. You remember when the gospel was at stake and um, uh, some Judaizers had come from Jerusalem to try to upset the church and uh, Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to, um, well, adamant about maintaining the purity of the gospel and Titus traveled with them in that um, event. Later, the Corinthian church um, had troubles. In fact, it was a mess. It really was. There was a lot of things wrong in the Corinthian church, and Paul sent Timothy to correct some of the things that were going wrong, some of the errors in that assembly. Paul writes about this his work in 2 Corinthians 7. We won't go there right now. It seemed that the Lord used Titus in that situation to um, handle the very difficult uh, task of church discipline. The assembly repented, it uh, corrected its ways, and uh, Timothy came back to Paul and explained what had happened, and Paul rejoiced at the, the outcome of his work there. Some don't have the stomach for that kind of work. Not everyone is called to that type of work. But uh, for difficult decisions, confrontation, Godly correction, Titus was the man for the job. Titus was also sent back after he met with Paul. Paul sent him back to Corinthian, uh, to Corinth and said, look, remember the Corinthian church promised that they would give a gift for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Go back and remind them of that. Go back and collect the offering that they promised to give. And so he had to go back there as well. And um, Paul said about him, about Titus, that uh, he had the same earnest care for the Corinthians as he himself had. And he took the gift with another brother to the needy Christians in Jerusalem. 
All right, so the, the event that we are looking at now takes place on the island of uh, Crete. About 10 years after Paul had uh, called upon Titus to, to um, go to, Corinthian, or to Corinth, he then leaned on him to go to this island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea here. And this brother apparently rolled up his sleeves and dove right into the work uh, here. Now, <clears throat> there's no indication in the New Testament that Paul went to the island of Crete except on his journey. Look, can we go? Yeah, thanks. On his journey, do you remember he was arrested? He was on his way to Rome. They came along the, um, this side of Crete in order to avoid some very uh, tempestuous winds. And when they ran into a storm, they, they, they temporarily laid anchor in the, um, well, in Fair, at Fairhavens. It was a, a bay or it was a, a port city, and they dropped anchor there just to wait out the storm. They really wanted to move on. Paul warned the captain of the ship to stay in Fairhavens at the time because of the, uh, the outcome of, of the trip if they went on. He didn't listen. When the weather changed, they said, okay, we've got enough time to move on. They were going to go to Phoenix, but the weather was, was uh, once they got out into the open uh, sea again, the weather turned and they, they drifted for uh, about two weeks uh, and they finally landed in Malta. And as we remember the story, the ship crashed, it broke apart. They, landed, they stayed at Malta until uh, the end of the winter. And um, so Paul really never had uh, a time, even when they, when they um, laid anchor, at Fairhavens, Paul was in no position to get off the, off the ship and go and preach the gospel here. He was a prisoner, you remember? And uh, he was unable to do so. They didn't stay there long. And it's not clear that anyone actually got off the ship at that time. So we have to surmise, based on what Paul says in Titus, that after his first imprisonment and before his second, Paul visited uh, Crete with Titus. And during the time there, they began to preach and to teach to the believers who were already there in every city. And, uh, and then he left Titus there to um, complete the work. Now, you rem may remember that in our early study of the book of Acts, that on the day of Pentecost, Peter got up in front of a crowd of thousands of men and women, and he preached the gospel for the first time. And as he preached the gospel, thousands of people trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Among the people who were there in Jerusalem at that time were Cretans. We read that in Acts chapter 2. These were probably Jews who went to Jerusalem for the Passover. After they were converted, they came back to the island of Crete, and they began to tell others about Jesus Christ. But you have to understand that their knowledge or their understanding of who he was and the, not just the gospel, but also uh, church conduct was very, very limited. And so they went back, and it seems to me that uh, they struggled along for years with very little teaching and certainly with no active spiritual leadership to speak of. If you remember the dates, Pentecost was 30 A.D. The writing of this letter to Titus is 65 A.D. And so we have 35 years of, uh, that had come and gone, and the churches had gr in Crete had grown, but in many ways they had grown wild, and they needed serious pruning. We might say that they were unhealthy and needed a doctor. 
And so Paul emphasizes the needs, the need for the churches in Crete to be sound. In fact, that word sound is very interesting. It means healthy or life-giving or whole. And so he uses that as you do a study of the book of Titus. You can trace that word through the book of Titus and see over and over again how Paul uses it because of the condition of the people um, who are professing Christians there. And so Paul emphasizes the need for the churches to be sound or healthy in their beliefs and practices. Let's take a look at that, Luke. Um, Sound in doctrine. So Paul emphasizes, first of all, the need for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is meant to correct false teachers. Next, he stresses the need for believers to be sound in the faith, to keep them from false teaching. He exhorts Timothy, or I'm sorry, Titus, I'm going to keep saying that. He exhorts Titus to speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That is to help the Cretans to become whole or healthy spiritually. In chapter 2, verse 2, older men are exhorted to be sound in faith. And then in verse 8, young men are to be sound in speech so that the enemies of the Lord will be silenced. Now, you have to understand that to bring churches out of 35 years worth of unhealthy teaching and practice was a formidable task. But Paul left a trusted believer, a trusted brother in Crete, to set in order the things that are lacking in the assembly. Let's take a look now at chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Two, Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, there's a lot of words, and you have to really look at them carefully, but let me just summarize what Paul is saying in these first four verses. Consistent with his call, or his calling as an apostle, Paul preached the gospel. Those who were who are the elect, those who are the chosen by God before the foundation of the world, believed the gospel and were saved. Paul also taught the word of God to the believers. And when believers hear the word of God, they recognize it as truth. Okay? If a person is truly a believer and they hear the word of God or they read the word of God, they recognize that it is the truth. And the goal of teaching, Paul says here, is sound doctrine. The, the goal of teaching sound doctrine is to produce godliness of life. Okay? So anytime we preach, anytime we teach, the emphasis or the goal in mind is to see believers grow in godliness. One of the motivations for godly living is found in this passage as well. And that is the hope of eternal life. Although eternal life is the present possession of every believer, Paul links it in verse 2 with hope. Hope, as we know, always has to do with certainty about the future of believers. So here Paul speaks of eternal life in its future aspect. That is, yes, you have eternal life when you believe the Lord Jesus Christ, 
but you are going to receive eternal life in a uh, future time as well. What is he saying? Well, it's, it's real life that is yet to come. Real life to come in fullness and completeness. It's a life that will be free from sin and sickness, sorrow, trouble, and death. This week I visited Debbie Holland. Many of you know her. We've been praying for her. And uh, I went to visit her. I prayed with her. Uh, she's dying from an incurable disease. I had not seen her for months. And um, as I looked at her body that is really shriveling up from this awful disease, my heart ached for her. And um, I've known Debbie for over 25 years. And I remember the first time I met her. She was a brand new believer. She had just started coming to Fairhaven. And uh, I knew from her testimony that she had eternal life. And she has had eternal life since then, but she's dying. And the future aspect that Paul talks about here may be hers even this week. She will possess eternal life in the future sense. And I'm sure of this, just as Paul was, because God, who cannot lie, Paul says, promised it before time began. And Paul and we are preachers of his word that tells us the truth about the future of all believers. Debbie is suffering now, but soon will be free from sin, free from sickness, pain, sorrow, and will enjoy the fullness of eternal life that God has promised to her and to us. I'll tell you, this little epistle is rich in doctrine. It is rich in doctrine. But the doctrine has practical implications in our lives. One of the doctrines that is taught right here in the first four verses is the doctrine of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Twice in verses 3 and 4, uh, we see this. So we're going to trace the theme through the book for just a moment. In fact, it's interesting. I'm going to give you a few nuggets here and there, and I'd like for you to just to jot them down on your piece of paper. And then after your... After your uh, lunch today just take out the book of titus you can read it easily in a half an hour or less and just mark some of the things that are traced through doctrinal things that are traced through the book of titus one of them is the um deity of the lord jesus christ in isaiah 43 verse 11 it says this the lord is speaking and he says i even i am the lord and beside me there is no savior very strong statement of who he is in verse 3 paul agrees with what god says in isaiah 43 11. he speaks of god our savior then with absolutely no apology he writes in verse 4 about jesus and says the lord jesus christ our savior if god is the only savior and jesus is our savior then jesus is God. This is a clear statement of the deity of Christ. Any quality, any attribute found in God is found in Jesus Christ. They are co-equal. Jesus Christ is God. The word Savior appears seven times in this little letter. So we've looked at two instances here, three and four. The third is in chapter 2, verse 10, where servants are told to adorn the doctrine of of God our Savior in all things. 
Next, chapter 2, 13, we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, that is one of the clearest in all of Scripture, but certainly it is the clearest in this book, uh, the clearest statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. Fifth, we read God, uh, verse three, chapter 3, verse 4, we read God our Savior. And finally, in 3, verse 6, we read Jesus Christ our Savior. To be sound in doctrine means that we must know who Jesus Christ is. We must recognize the deity of Jesus Christ if we are going to be sound in doctrine. He is God, our Savior, and what a wonderful Savior He is. Going back to verse 4, we read another evidence of the uh, deity of Jesus Christ. We read the triple blessing of grace, mercy, and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse shows the equality of God the Father and the Son as the source of grace, mercy, and peace. Now, we could never say grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Charlie Epps. It doesn't fit. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Don. It doesn't fit. But we do say grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are co-equal. To say that, we can say that because he is equal with God. All right, next we come to uh, verses 5 through 16. The need for godly elders in every city. And so the first point we want to make in this is that uh, Paul encourages Titus to recognize elders. And the term is plural. It's elders with an S. And he's talking about elders in every city. There's a plurality of elders in every assembly in every city. And so let's read the verse, verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete. That's the clue that Paul had been there with Titus. That you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. From God's standpoint, an assembly uh, is incomplete without a plurality of elders. It is incomplete. Notice Paul does not say appoint a pastor in every city, nor does he say to appoint a bishop over churches throughout Crete. What we see as far as the church today is concerned is really, um, it does not follow the simplicity of God's command here. Paul exhorts Titus to appoint a plurality of elders in every city. There is not a great pyramid with the pastor at the top and, and several layers of leaders under him. The, the um, viewpoint that we have here in the scripture is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is supreme. He is the one that we are accountable to. But God, just as he is the chief shepherd, he has appointed under shepherds to care for local assemblies of believers. And we read that in the scriptures. Elders of a local assembly are directly accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ, not some higher uh, or hierarchy of leaders. Even on the, the small island of Crete, 
Titus was responsible to appoint a plurality of elders in every assembly in every city. Now, it's, it's likely that there was happy fellowship among the believers, uh, among the assemblies there, but every individual church, uh, assembly, every individual church had a plurality of elders. This is the pattern that Paul established as an apostle, as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is the same pattern that should be in place today. All right, Paul then talks about the qualifications of elders, and to summarize it, blameless. If a man is blameless, verse 6, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Those are the negatives. Then the, then the positives. But hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So as he did in 1 Timothy, Paul gives Titus the guidelines governing an elder's family life, his personal character, and his ability to handle and to teach the word. He must be able, by sound doctrine, that is life-giving doctrine, that is healthy, uh, clear understanding of the fundamentals of the faith, and be able to teach that well, he, he must, by sound doctrine, exhort and convict those who contradict. There is a very strong emphasis in this book for the elders to deal effectively with false teaching and bad living. And I believe as we look at this book and we trace this um, emphasis in the book, there are escalating levels of discipline that Paul brings forth for us. Elders are called to exercise discipline in the church when it is called for uh, and where it is called for. It is a terribly distasteful uh, responsibility on the part of elders, but it's necessary. If the elders truly love the saints, if they truly love and care for the whole assembly, sometimes tough measures are necessary against individual believers because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The saints are like sheep. If, if elders are shepherds, then the saints are like sheep. Rick and I were talking about this the other night, and um, one of the things that he mentioned and reminded me about was the fact that Psalm 23 is a, is a wonderful picture of the work of an elder. Certainly it talks about the Lord Jesus, uh, about God preparing a table before us and so on, and all the things that God does to shepherd his people. But that same shepherd heart that God has is the same shepherd heart that elders must have. And as you look at the passage there, it talks about how the sheep lie down in green pastures. Why? Because they're not troubled. They can rest. It talks about the need to spread a table before me in the presence of my enemies. If you know a little history about the, the work of shepherds, you know that shepherds long before the sheep um, are ready to graze the tablelands, the lands that are flat and higher up in the mountains, they go and they prepare those tablelands for the sheep. And they remove noxious weeds. 
and they make sure that if there are enemies uh, like wolves in the area, that they get rid of them. The sheep know nothing about this, and they don't have to know anything about it. All they need to know is that shepherds have cared for them and that they're able to go and enjoy a table spread before them in the presence of their enemies, and they're at peace. It is the job of elders to protect the sheep and to keep the wolves out. The sheep will probably be completely unaware of what is going on behind the scenes. But if they are at peace, we have done our job. So the following section, verses 10 through 16, elaborates on this call upon elders to um, exhort and convict those who contradict. Let's read it. Verses 10 through 16. For there are many insubordinate both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. He names names here, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. Who are the circumcision? They're the Jews. Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wow. This testimony is true, Paul says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, and to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in, the, in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now, in the Scripture, by my count, and I may be wrong, but by my count, there are at least six levels of church discipline. There are at least six. Three of them are found here in the book of Titus. The three forms of discipline mentioned here are found in this order that I'm going to give you, and they escalate in seriousness as we proceed through the book. The first one is that elders are to exhort and convict. They are to confront defiant and rebellious people by exhorting them to change their behavior. These people need to be convicted of wrong behavior by the effective use of Scripture. This is is for the spiritual health, not only of the one being corrected, but it is for the spiritual health of the whole assembly. It is absolutely essential to convict, or to exhort and to convict. Next, we read that there are cases where elders are to silence those who attempt to deceive or subvert the saints. In verse 11 and verse 13, elders are to literally muzzle them silence them and rebuke them sharply very strong words that are used here again what is the goal what is the purpose of this is it just so that they can lay a heavy hand on someone no not at all the whole purpose and goal of any discipline in the church is to restore a wandering sheep and to bring them back into the fold to bring them to the point where they are living godly lives as they're supposed to be living that is the purpose that is the end it is restoration but it takes discipline in certain cases to bring that effect. The goal is to turn them from their deceit 
and cause them to be subject to sound doctrine. At times, as we read in 1 Timothy 5.20, this may even involve public rebuke. It is possible. Third, uh, elders are told in chapter 3, verse 10, to shun a divisive or divisive man. I'm Canadian. I say divisive. Some of you say divisive. So I'll say divisive and you know what I mean. A man like this has made a choice to be self-willed. He will not listen to sound doctrine. He strikes out on his own path and he seeks to gather a following around him. And very often men like this have certain kind of quirky ideas or they take a doctrine, a, a proper doctrine, but they take it to an extreme. Or they take a doctrine and they, they can't see anything but one aspect of a doctrine. They don't see the big picture. And they seek to gather a following around himself and his ideas. It may be a doctrinal hobby horse. It may be a lifestyle choice that is pushed upon the saints to gain a following. It may even seem to be more spiritual to follow his way. But in doing so, he is causing factions, divisions, and dissension in the assembly. The elders are told here in chapter 3 to warn him once and warn him a second time. And after that, uh, he is to, if he's unresponsive, he is to be shunned. Now, it does not necessarily imply excommunication. But he is right on the edge. He is right on the edge. And if a person is unchangeable, it will lead to excommunication from the church. There is a tendency among tender-hearted believers, and especially friends, to rally around a person like this and to think that, oh, the elders are being harsh, to think that the elders are maybe not seeing the whole picture, and to sympathize with the, wrong, the wrongdoer out of a distorted view of love. Love does not give in to evil. That is not love. Whom the Lord loves, the Scripture says, He what? He chastens. He corrects. And an elder is sometimes called upon to do the same, even in the face of sincere opposition. For an elder the health of the whole body is more important and must take priority even over sentimental feelings that he may have for the divisive man. Absolutely essential. In this section, Paul reminds Titus about the kind of people he is ministering to. I'll tell you, <laughs> when we read that, Paul certainly was not PC, was he? Politically correct. There's a big call in our society to be politically correct. Paul wasn't. He really wasn't. He wouldn't do well in today's churches. He wouldn't do well, certainly, in our society today. In his statement, he says this, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, you might say, well, he was pushing forth what somebody else said. Well, he did. He quoted one of their own. And then he confirmed it by saying, this is true. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, you may be really uncomfortable seeing this in the Scripture. Are you? Well, good. I'm glad. 
But you know, almost all people groups have national characteristics, national characteristic traits. With a name like Robertson, I can't hide the fact that I'm Scottish. And if I were to, or if you were to characterize the Scottish people, they are known for what? Miserly, cheap, who said knobby knees? <laughs> yeah, they're known. Now you've just tarred an entire nation of people as being miserly or cheap. Thrifty, thank you. Why do you think the cartoon character Scrooge McDuck has a Scottish accent? <laughs> it's, a, it's applicable. The, nat the national characteristic is that Scots are cheap. So if you were called to go into the Scottish uh, landscape and preach and teach Scottish people, what are some of the things that you would want to teach? Not to be thrifty, to be generous in giving, to be hilarious as Paul talks to the uh, um, Philippians about uh, their giving. They were hilarious in their giving. You probably have to teach lessons on generous giving and sharing. Well, the Cretans as a people were liars, habitual liars. I went to a store. I won't tell you the nation, the nationality. I went to a store um, some time ago, and a young man came, and he was the fellow who was trying to sell me some um, sound equipment. And I said, oh, where are you from? And he told me the country. And I said, oh, we've had some dealings with um, people from that country. And he says, of his nation, they're all liars. <laughs> and I thought to myself, then what does that make you? <laughs> you know? I didn't say that. But that's what the Cretans were. So much so that one of their own, pro uh, or their own poets, Epimenides, a native of Crete from the 6th century B.C., wrote this scathing assessment of his own people. The Cretans were notorious liars. They were n notorious for their corruption and for being lazy gluttons. Boy, that's strong. In fact, there was actually a verb to cretinize, which was a euphemism for lying. The interesting thing is that Paul does not abandon them as a people group and say, look, there's no hope for these people. He doesn't at all. He sends one of his best men into the situation to correct the problems and to bring them to godly living. There were true believers on this island who had grown up in this rotten culture of lying, brutish behavior, laziness, and self-indulgence of every form. The needs were great, but the effect of the gospel is greater still. And it can take a person like that and completely change and transform them. And that's what Paul um, was expecting. But strong rebukes were essential to move them from their lethargy to positive action for Christ. How would he do this? You know, it's interesting. Again, I'll just give you some clues for your afternoon study. Take the statements that Paul says of the Cretans, liars, and then follow Paul's train of thought from the very beginning where he says that God, who cannot lie, interesting, isn't it, that he should use that characteristic of God, what he promised he will fulfill, follow truth all the way through the book of Titus, and you'll see the emphasis that Paul lays on it. Brute beasts. Uh, he talks about that. Uh, beastly behavior would be countered with godly living. See how often Paul speaks about godly living in this book. 
Christians being zealous for good works. We talked about this at our supper table the other day. I said, if somebody were lazy, a lazy glutton, what do they need to do? What, do you need, what part of them do you need to correct? You need to make them do what? Work. Okay, the emphasis of works in this book is profound considering the length of it. And he keeps emphasizing being zealous for good works, which would extinguish laziness. And then if they're given to gluttony, that is an overindulgence in um, eating and in drinking, you'd hope that they would become what? I'm sorry? Discipline, self-discipline, that comes out uh, frequently. If someone over-drinks, they need to be sober. The word sober, sober-minded, follow it. Just trace it all the way through this book. Very clear evidence that Paul is emphasizing these character traits over and over again as he deals with this people group. Titus was to address each group of believers to set them straight and uh, to encourage them or move them to godly living. All right, let's take a look at chapter 2. But as we read these verses, I want you to ask yourself, in what area do I need to change? In what area do you need to change? What hinders me in my life from godly living? Because that's the whole point of this, of this book, to live in a godly way. And so I want to exhort each one of you to live in such a way that the Word of God will not be blasphemed. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And now he takes each individual uh, group. Older men, first of all. That the older men be sober. There it is. Reverent. Temperate. Sound in faith, in love, in patience. The next group are older women. Verses 3 through 5. The older women, likewise, that they might be, that they may be, uh, reverent in behavior, not slanderers. What is a slanderer? Yeah, one is a gossip, but one who lies about somebody else. Usually they, they say something that, that is not true about another person. So there again, you're talking about lying in here. Not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. Now, Paul does not specifically i'm sorry titus did not specifically speak to younger women but he talks to the older women to raise up the younger women and that's what he says here in the next verse they admonish the younger women to love their husbands to love their children to be discreet chaste homemakers good obedient to their own husbands that the word of god may not be blasphemed next younger men Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Next group of people he deals with are servants. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering. That is stealing from their um, masters, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Did you see yourself in the list? The call is for godly living. The, the, the exposure here of God's word is meant not just to show us 
that we have dirt on our face or dirt in our lives, but so that we might use the scripture to correct our behavior. And so proper godly behavior is really the clarion call in this chapter. What are the reasons we should live godly? The reasons believers should live godly. Well, he talks about salvation here uh, in three ways. In fact, there are three tenses of salvation. I don't know if you know that or not. We were saved, that is, when we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are being saved as we change our behavior and we uh, live godly lives. And we will be saved, that is, coming up when the Lord comes to take us home to be with Him. Let's take a look at each one of them. For the grace of God, verse 11, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God was seen in the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth and dying on the cross for our sins. God's grace, that is his undeserved favor to hell-deserving sinners, was revealed in his life, death, and resurrection. And by whose substitutionary sacrifice salvation came, it says, to all men. When he died on the cross, there was no limit to his provision. We believe in unlimited atonement. We believe that when Jesus Christ died, salvation was open and free to all who will believe. Salvation is available to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to every tribe and kindred and tongue, to the slave and to the free, to the male, to male and female, so that whosoever will may come. Salvation, as we sing in the song, is for the vilest offender who truly believes. Salvation is for you and for me. Those who believe look back at the time when we first believed and we were saved from the penalty of sin. That's what we mean by the past tense of salvation. We were saved from the penalty of our sin. Then in verse 12, because we are being saved, that is the present tense of salvation, we we read this, verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Here the emphasis is that we are saved from not the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. When we were unsaved and sin said to us, do this, do that, do something else that was wrong, we just did it. Whatever felt good, we did it. But as believers, we have the power given to us by the Holy Spirit to stop, to say no, to turn from sin. The life of a true believer should be one of constant change, constant movement towards greater and greater godliness. And God gives us the power to overcome ungodliness, worldly lusts, and to turn to sober, righteous, and godly behavior in these days. We are saved from the power of sin. We are also saved from, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. I tell you, I'm looking forward to that. I am looking forward to that. That's what he's talking about next. We will be saved. Verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. The blessed hope is the rapture of the church. That is when Jesus Christ comes 
to the air and he snatches all believers who have died and all believers who are still living and take us home to be with him in heaven, the blessed hope. We are looking forward to that day and it could be today. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ points to an event that will take place seven years later when he will come with his saints. The first time he comes for his saints to gather them to himself Then he comes seven years later with his saints to the earth to set up his peaceful millennial reign on the earth and to crush his enemies. The prophecies of his coming are never meant to tickle our um, intellect. The prophecies concerning his coming, coming are never meant for us to run out and buy the next edition of the latest volume of um, the Left Behind series. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it, but sometimes that's all we do. All we do is we say, oh, this is fascinating. Look at this. It's going to And we start putting things that are happening in our current day into, uh, into our heads. May or may not be true. But that's not the point of prophecy. The point of prophecy is to call us to godly living. What it really is meant for is that, look, Jesus Christ is coming again. The one who died to save you, the one who died because of your sins, are you ready? Are you watching? Is your life in order? That's what verse 14 speaks about. Um, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Good works, emphasized very strongly in this epistle not as a means of gaining salvation or earning salvation, but as a natural response of someone who truly is saved. You know, if the culture they live in was given over to self-indulgence, self-gratification, lazy gluttony, then the answer to it is a life marked by good works that God prepared beforehand for them to walk in. All right, chapter 3, the need for believers to live godly, not just in the home or in the assembly, but also to live godly in the world. And so he talks about our practice. It's interesting, when we look at the book of Ephesians, we see that the first three chapters are dedicated to our position in Christ. And in light of our position, the rest of the book talks about our practice. Here the order is actually reversed. And he talks, first of all, about our practice. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. You know, it really should not be hard for us to be gentle and show humility to, uh, to people as we witness to them. We, we've talked about this last uh, week when we were meeting together about this evangelism class and the the importance of the right kind of approach to people, that we're not hammering, hammering them over the head with the Bible, that we should do so, we should preach the gospel with all sincerity, with humility and gentleness. It shouldn't be hard for us to be that way when we remember our own past. And that's what Paul talks about here in verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
but we've, we've found the truth, or should we say the truth found us, okay? The Lord spoke to us and saved our souls. If he saved us, he can save others who were just like us. Next, we talk about our position, chapter uh, verse 4 through 7. But when the kindness and the love of, our, of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. By the way, just let me stop here for a minute. Did you notice the Trinity in that passage? First, he's talking about the love of God our Savior, speaking probably about God the Father there. I would say in the context, that's who he's talking about at that moment. And then it says in verse 5 at the end, of the Holy Spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom goes back to the Holy Spirit. He goes back to God the Father, poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, God the Son. The Trinity is seen in this verse. Having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All right, next we talk about profitable and unprofitable living. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. What is good and profitable to men? Maintaining good works. If we as believers maintain good works, it's profitable not just for ourselves, not just for the church, it's profitable for mankind in general. Profitable. But, he says, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. And so we have the profitable and the unprofitable in this uh, passage. Verse 10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Church discipline of a divisive man is underscored by Paul's assessment of him. He says such a person is warped. It means that person is perverted. It may not bring, in English, it may not bring across the same emphasis to us. So really what he's talking about is this. The person has hardened his heart to such a point that he will not stop, he will not listen to godly counsel, he will not listen to reason. And so Paul is saying here, he is sinning. He is self-condemned. He knows that it's wrong, yet he persists in his stubbornness. And so Paul talks about rejecting a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Paul, in uh, verses 12 and 13 has personal instructions to Titus when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. Encouragement here is that they might, the assemblies might support them in their journey. They might help them uh, get over to um, Paul. And then finally in verses 14 and 15, I thought it was a very tender uh, comment here and let our people also learn to maintain good works you know it's interesting that Paul quoted the Cretan poet about the lazy gluttons the liars the evil beasts 
And here at the very end, he's saying, look, there are believers on this island. Yes, they did come out of this horrible background. But if they will listen, if they will obey the Scriptures, and they will heed sound doctrine, live godly lives, you know what? There are people. There are people. Let our people also learn uh, learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's just give thanks to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you today, we recognize that what is said of the Cretans could just as easily be said of our society today. Men think nothing of lying. They think nothing of beastly behavior. They think nothing of being lazy, gluttons completely consumed with self-indulgence of every kind. And yet, Lord, we know that you have people here in our midst. We think of the um, society that many still have not come to know you. Some have not heard about you. And we pray, Lord, that the gospel might get through even to people in this condition. We pray that we might see some turn from their ungodly ways and become godly, righteous, holy before you, and that they might be zealous for good works and maintain good works. And we pray, Lord, as we have spoken these words this morning, that we might see ourselves in the mirror of your word, and Lord, that, you might ha- let it ha- that we might let it have its effect in our lives, that we might change where needed and, and become more and more Christ-like in our behavior, in our thoughts, in our tongue, in our actions, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.